The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinephiles. We are recording this special short as we're dropping this episode of Goodfellas in honor of the uh, tragic passing, and I would say tragic because of the timing, uh, of Ray Liotta, the lead of Goodfellas, uh, passed away at 67 years old in his sleep uh, there in the Dominican Republic on the set of a movie. Uh, Steve, this is um, uh, this one hit me pretty hard, and I actually told the Lady Outlaw about it last night, and she was pretty shocked about it as well. You know, we're getting up there, 67 doesn't seem that far nope. away anymore. So what were your thoughts when you heard the news of Ray Liotta passing? Well, that's the, the first thing. I mean, the, 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 I think as you grow older, you get to the point where, oh, I'm older than those tragic young deaths like John Belushi or Jimi Hendrix. And, <laughs> yeah. and then you get to like where you, you see someone and they die, you know, in, in 95. And you're like, oh, yeah. that's that's so far away. This is not far away. No. We're getting into the the you died a little young. And I feel like Ray Liotta is a guy that I came up with. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, through the 1980s with Field of Dreams, uh, also a film we did. Uh, on the cinephiles and and the goodfellas really kind of launching him uh but it got into some interesting films like copland and narc Mm -hmm. and some of my favorite kind of quiet 1980s films like dominic and eugene with him and thomas holtz which i thought was a fantastic film got and he appeared in the simpsons and the muppets the guy had a wide range of things something wild is this villain that does comedy does drama does voiceover work he, he was a, he had narrated an episode of 30 for 30 for ESPN. So there he had such a wide expanse. And I feel like and most recently, in the many saints of Newark, I feel like he was coming back into prominence in terms of people mm. knowing him, respecting him, appreciating him. He was starting to show up more in interviews and podcasts. And he was working. He's got four projects that are in the hopper right now and for and, wow. and passed away, unfortunately. So uh, just a I don't know, just a very tragic loss because he's a guy that has a lot of stories to tell, Steve. And when you ever listen to him on the podcasts or in the interviews, he really does tell them. He, he's such an interesting guy. And by the way, I first encountered him in Something Wild. Yes. And right. he is terrifying in that, <laughs> in that movie. And what's so interesting, he's one of those guys who his – his personality is so strong mm-hmm. that I feel like people saw him in Goodfellas and went, well, I don't know what else to do with this guy. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and in yeah. fact, he had all these other gears. Like I remember when he showed up on ER, mm-hmm. and, right. and which I think he won an Emmy for. And he his performance was so vulnerable and so powerful. And you're like, oh, this guy's got all this stuff left in the tank and he hasn't had the opportunity to show it all. Yeah, he's he was such a symbolism of manhood, if I can use that term in a way that isn't sexist at all. He was he's just he he radiated that. Right. But he was also willing to take the piss out of himself, willing to play these roles that kind of made fun of him. He was great at playing, being able to go up and down the spectrum. And I feel that's because he has such a strong kind of center 
of who he was. And that really radiated when you watched him in uh, anything, whether it was a TV show, as you mentioned, ER or a film or a special or anything like that. It was always there. Those steel blue eyes that smirked that you didn't know if he was mad at you or laughing with you. Uh, the, the weird laugh of his all through yeah. Goodfellas, uh, but also his drive and his determination, right? To, to kind of connect with people. I was watching a clip from him with um, uh, in the Kelly and uh, Kelly and uh, what's his name? Ryan Seacus, hey, Ryan and Kelly or whatever it's called, uh, Kelly and Ryan. Um, and he talked about working with rappers and he uses their actual real names. And he hmm. mentioned that he's like, I don't call LL. I call him Todd. And, and I call, you know, Busta a Rob or something like that. So like for him, the whole he understood the facade of having this brand or this title. But in the back of it, it's like, let me get to know you as a person, you know, and there's a there's a reality to him. There's a grounded reality to him that I think a lot of people gravitated to uh, in his films and TV shows. I think that's a great way to put it. There's something so real about him, whether it was him playing Shoeless Joe, even though Shoeless Joe's like a guy from the South, nothing like this New York guy. <laughs> Never or been New more York. menacing. Yeah, but, and then I just, can you imagine, okay, you've, you've done some small parts that you've gotten some attention for. Right, right. And then Scorsese comes along and says, not only do I want you to play the lead of this big movie, but you're going to play the lead in a Martin Scorsese movie with De Niro as a supporting actor. Yeah. Like, can you imagine what that felt like? Well, I mean, he lobbied for it so hard. You know, we talk about it. Uh, he lobbied so hard mm. for that role. He petitioned Scorsese. He counted him down uh, until Scorsese finally uh, gave him the shot. And you're right, though, Steve. Once It's different fighting for the shot. Once you get the shot, you've got to deliver. And I think of all the lead actors in Scorsese's films not named DiCaprio or um, uh, De Niro, he stands out uh, uh, powerfully so above all the others. It's incredible. He only did one film with Scorsese, yet people might argue that that's Scorsese's greatest film and De Niro's not even the lead in it. And yeah, that's, that's an incredible thing to think about. Absolutely amazing. And and he does this, I think he and Scorsese do this crazy magic trick, which is here's a bunch of bad guys yeah. who are going to do nothing but bad things. And you are going to love them yeah. and want when he's the movie starts off with all my life i wanted to be a gangster yeah. he pulls you in in this way oh yeah to feel like yeah this seems like a lot of fun to be a gangster absolutely until yeah. things start to turn you know yeah, you feel because you connected with him as you said uh, steve so well when you connect with him right at the beginning that lets you really dial into the story so by the time everything starts falling apart at the end you're actually feeling for this murdering drug running uh you know, a criminal, you're feeling for him and the pain and everything he went through. And, you know, Lorraine Bracco is his co-star in the movie. She posted a very heartbreaking tweet about his passing and just said, you know, whenever anyone comes up and asks me about Goodfellas, they always ask, what was your favorite part of it? And I always say working with Ray. That was my favorite part of everything. And, you know, that movie made both of them made totally. both of them and they were so great in that film and great chemistry between them and you know as i said i feel like it's so sad because we saw him in many saints of newark we saw him recently in a number of other projects where he was kind of like a marriage story where he was kind of embracing okay now I'm, now i'm the older guy i can become the character actor now and have some mm. fun with these roles and have some fun with these uh, uh with these performances where i don't have to carry the film anymore and that was so fun to see over the last few years getting to reappreciate him and enjoy him as an actor yet again. That's a really great point. I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but he's one of those guys 
who in his youth was the good looking, oh, yeah. you know, you know, this guy should be a movie star, right. but he actually is more of a, much more of a character actor. Yeah. All of his good roles are really him playing an interesting smaller part. And I wonder if that hurt his career, like people wanting him to be a star, but that's not exactly who he is, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point, Steve. And, and he went through the ups and downs, as you said, dude, grabbing those leads, you know, making a name for himself, kind of similar to Andy Garcia, making a name for himself in 8 million wins to die. And then in untouchables, then he's getting some chances to be the lead, but in the end, doesn't hundred percent work out for him to be the lead in these films and put butts in seats. So he goes back to being part of, you know, kind of the, uh, the, uh, en- ensemble or part of a, uh, the secondary or third actor there and having some fun with the roles and certainly seeing that that was that was toward the back half of the 90s into the 2000s what ray was doing with stuff like narc and copland he was having fun playing these characters playing these roles he didn't have to be the lead necessarily even though there are people who still love stuff like unlawful entry when he when he was a scary good in a movie like that and other lead roles where he's played either the villain or the antagonist or the protagonist um but in the end like you're right character actor i think is where he settled on best so when he would show up in things like er like you mentioned and other things it allowed you to really kind of enjoy him and um i don't know just 67 is way too young my man yeah it it really really is uh it's funny we're doing an intro for goodfellas and you know over the years now we've every year redone a movie that was one of our earlier ones yeah goodfellas is definitely one where it was our 26th episode we hadn't quite we were kind of in the midst of making that turn to going beat by beat but we weren't quite there yet and it is definitely one that I think could benefit <laughs> from Cinephile's redo. You yeah, know. yeah. Maybe a certain Joe Mantegna would want to join us. I'd be down to hear his points of views oh, uh, on fun. Goodfellas. That'd be a lot of fun for sure. That's a very interesting idea. Well, this is our special intro for uh, Goodfellas here, honoring the great Ray Liotta who passed away sadly in his sleep. But if you're going to go, that's the way I want to go in my sleep. Although I don't know what the wake up process is like, though, Steve. Is you think it's a very gentle wake up process, or are you like what the? do you think it's more like that i don't know i'm just asking questions. i don't know man i have no opinion on what it's actually like to die in your sleep there you go well i just wanted to throw that out there and i think ray would appreciate that yeah. uh but yeah but uh honoring him with our uh, intro here uh, as we introduce yet again our 26th episode as uh, steve pointed out here for you all to enjoy yet again goodfellas As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. I'm John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist and host and actor here in Los Angeles, California. And today we're doing another of our great directors. Yeah. You know, we've done Steven Spielberg. We've done Stanley Kubrick. We've done Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet, and of course, the great Orson Welles. Yeah. And I think we're adding another one to our list today. Absolutely. Yeah. Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, of those, of those 70s mm-hmm. directors, mm-hmm. he might be the guy that's lasted the longest and continued to do great films 
Maybe other than Steven Spielberg. Probably. That's probably, you could probably argue both. You could make a really good argument for an hour about which one is more valid as a still continuing to be a successful and good filmmaker. Yeah. Good being the operative word in that right. sentence. Yeah. Well, a few of them are not with us anymore, like Sidney. Well, Sidney Lumet's an earlier one. Sidney right, comes right. out of the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I'm taking Coppola. Coppola, Bogdanovich. Yeah, those guys there. Um, yeah. The, the, from that time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he, Scorsese, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Scorsese, because he continues. And even though, like, you know, there are moments where you go, oh, that, that movie didn't quite right. hit. But then a few years later, there'll be another one that just he hits out of the park. Yeah. Um, and today we're doing, uh, we debated a bit about which one we should do. Yeah. Because there's so many, and we're going to return to Scorsese again. Absolutely. Again. Many, many times, I think, through the but, course of this but, podcast. But we haven't done a gangster film yet. Yeah. And it seemed like time to do Goodfellas. Yeah. And for those of you clamoring for Godfather, we're waiting for the right time for that one. That's it's coming. That's, it's, that's an no opus, question. you know? Yeah. So that's we got to build up to that. Well, and this is, you know, in how we pick our films. We don't want to mm-hmm. just go, let's look at the AFI top 10 list right. and do the 10. Right. You know, we want to we want to give you a wide variety of films. And, Absolutely. And, and Godfather is definitely coming. Um, and it's but it's funny to talk about Godfather in relationship to Goodfellas because mm-hmm. they are, I think, or Godfather one and two are the greatest Along with Goodfellas, these are the three greatest gangster movies of all time. Absolutely. I agree with you or completely. Or mafia movies, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. a great point. And they're totally different. Yes. The whole, even And you could go like, oh, they're both accurate. They're both well-researched. Mm-hmm. They're both made by Italian-Americans. Mm-hmm. They both have a deep sense of personal in yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. And they're completely different. Yeah. yeah. And the errors that are explored are explored in both films, yep. both series of yeah. films, uh, definitely. Yeah. So with me, that being the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and then 80s as it yeah. goes forward, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and it was funny. I was thinking a lot about what is the difference between Coppola as a filmmaker and Scorsese? Mm. And, there, and, and the thing that I came up with is that Coppola is operatic. Yes, grandiose. Yeah, the so much more big so. themes mm-hmm. and, and 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 also personal. Mm-hmm. Like uh, by the time this comes out, I think our episode on Apocalypse Now will have come. Oh out. yeah, yeah. And Apocalypse Now explores madness and morality and human frailty and violence. Right. right. And it is completely different from Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. And Godfather is completely different from Goodfellas. And yeah. it seems like Coppola is interested in the big. Yeah. Big themes and not necessarily realism in the same way. Right. It's like personal and big and operatic. And Scorsese is interested in the real, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're both very theatrical filmmakers, but it's just, you know, you could watch The Godfather and and then watch Goodfellas and it's just the experience is... They're nothing like each other. Yeah, it's a deconstruction of the myth of the of the gangster. That's what I think yeah. Goodfellas is. And I think Coppola was trying to do that with Godfather, but he made, and, and Pacino's personality, he made the character of Michael Corleone together. They made the character of Michael Corleone uh, so attractive as a yeah. villain, so attractive as a, for lack of a better term, a heel, you know, and we couldn't help. And he tried to make him even more of a villain in the second one, and it didn't quite work either. So this is what's interesting, whereas you see here in, in Goodfellas, there are so many villains in the film oh, yeah. by every by every definable trait that a villain is but we again can't help but feel an attraction to these guys because of the force of personality the actors that were cast to play these parts and then eventually we do turn on them as the, as the no film goes on about it. Yeah. in a major way yes well and I think uh, and you do turn on Michael Corleone too mm-hmm. but it's different and it's just yeah. I want to you know it's just an interesting thing to take a look at and I think part of the difference is is that Michael Corleone's motivation yeah is essentially moral at the beginning right is that his motivation is it's about family right is that i have to and when when he goes through and obviously we're not talking about godfather we'll talk about it later but when he makes his first criminal choices 
they are to do the right thing. And yeah. we admire him yeah. at the beginning of that movie. There is no moment in this film, mm-hmm. ex- except maybe one I can think of, where Henry Hill is doing things for moral reasons. Right. He's not. That He's doing things to get ahead because yep. it's fun to look mm-hmm. good, to have you know sex and drugs mm-hmm. and partying and not be part of the regular rules of society. Yeah, he did not want to fit the norms of the 95 yeah. job. You know, that's very clear throughout the beginning of the film how uh, what a difference his father was to him. His father, in his mind, was a working stiff. He wanted the attractive lifestyle of the gangster. And that's what yeah. we, we see throughout the beginning of the film. And it's, it's really well done the way Scorsese oh, constructs amazing. that. Because as a kid, when you're a young kid watching that movie, you understand the desire of that kid to be, you know, to be more, to be successful, to be what he sees as success. And it's very similar to what you see in the inner cities, like not to be not to make too much of a strict correlation, but you see the inner cities like people see gang leaders or drug dealers and they have nice cars, oh, yeah. they have money, they have these chains. And when you come from a poor area, sometimes you can be lured in by that and think it's a glamorous lifestyle and think the violence is like uh, is like a cool and all this kind of jazz and you get caught up in it. And that well, I think if, happens yeah. if you don't have anything else to model. Right. You know, it's like because, you know, it's like you look at, oh, well, there's rich billionaires, Bill Gates or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Well, you're a poor kid you can't look and go i could be that right there's not professors standing on the street corner with like right. having competition on on no. dark on no, uh, whiteboards the, about uh, formulas and what have you, you see yeah. this guy who grew up in your neighborhood yeah. lived your kind of life went your kind of school and now he's driving a cadillac escalade mm-hmm. you go oh that's something I could do. Absolutely. So how'd you first come to Goodfellas? Uh, in the theater, just like everyone else. I was, you know, I was, I was in my 20s, 20, early, or I guess late teens, early 20s when it came out, and I was super excited to see it. Obviously, Scorsese, I'd become, by this point, I was a bona fide cinephile, so anything that was coming out with Scorsese's name on it, I went to see. And so I saw it in a theater, I think in Virginia, uh, with a bunch of friends who were uh, friends of mine from high school, and we all got together and watched it, and it was just amazing, just amazing from front to back. One of one of my favorite films. It's 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 a kind of an overwhelming film. Yeah, I saw it in the theater too. And I, you're and you're in my timing. I think is pretty similar because uh-huh. I I don't remember what my first Scorsese film was. I think it was Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. and I think it was maybe I'd seen Color of Money or something like that in the right, theaters. Right. But I didn't really know who Scorsese was. I was starting to just starting mm-hmm. to learn that, you know, 87, 88, 89. Right. Is when I started to go, oh, who are these famous filmmakers? And I remember renting Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and Raging Bull. Yeah. And then maybe like New York, New York and King of Comedy and some of those other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it came out in the theater, I went to the, the to see it. Mm-hmm. And it is an exhilarating and upsetting mm-hmm. and high adrenaline film. Like you, It's not like you go out overwhelmed and sad. You right. go out sort of nervous and, and mm-hmm. like, what did I go through? Like you went through something really intense. Yeah. You see that film. Yeah, I, I think that's what... I, that's why the film to me is very difficult to watch over and over again because oh, yeah. of those last 30 minutes of the film. What had been so amazing to see this love of gangster, like I just have a love of seeing it on film, right? I don't ever want to be part of it. I don't want to be in a crew. No, 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 no desire to do any of that. But when I see it on film, it's so well done and glamorized that when he went to the whole point of the movie, was de- was, which was to deconstruct this myth of the gangster, very similar to Unforgiven, he doesn't give you what Eastwood gives you at the end, which is right. this badass moment of ending it's no. sad it's pathetic oh, yeah. and you know his last line of they uh it's tomato sauce in water is what they right. pass for you know ketchup, pasta yeah. sauce yeah ketchup and water yeah. they what they pass for pasta sauce you you're just like wow that's terrible you're not left with a good feeling when you leave the theater absolutely like i think i agree with you completely steve you're left with what did i just what did i just get jerked around about for for yeah. almost two hours and a half you know well, but 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 you're also left with this great feeling of elation oh yeah 
in the first half, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and and it's so let's let's start. Sure. I think I think you got to start with the choice to put the middle of the film at the beginning. Yeah. So so let's just to back up a little bit. This is based on a true story. Yeah. There's a real guy named Henry Hill. There's really a Jimmy Conway. There's really a Paul whatever his Beatty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and this is a guy who really turned states and evidence really wanted mm-hmm. to witness protection. And Nicholas Pleggi, the reporter, he came and wrote a book all about it called wise guys. Right. And, uh, Scorsese op- or actually Ir- Irvin Winkler optioned the book. Scorsese calls him up, Nicholas Pleggi and says, Pleggi, am I saying that right? Yeah. Pleggi, I think. Yeah. And, sa- and says, hi, this is Martin Scorsese. I'm a, or Marty Scorsese. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, and, and Pleggi goes, I know who you are. <laughs> you know? He says, well, I want to do your film. And Plague goes, and you're going to do my film. This is like my dream. But Erlen Wink- Ir- Irvin Winkler has the the, uh, the rights. The rights. Yeah. And so they had to work that out. Once they worked that out, um, this is the first screenplay since Mean Streets that Scorsese wrote with oh, wow. Plague. Yeah, he wow. didn't write any of the other ones. But he okay. really felt that the only way he could get this right was to write. So they so they collaborated on it. And... Um, and one of the decisions they made as they're going through the book, they wrote the f- screenplay the first time yeah. uh, chronologically. And, oh, wow. And Scorsese went, this isn't, it's not right. Mm-hmm. It's not working. And You're then just retelling the book, yeah. Yeah, and then he went, what we need to do to set the tone is take the Billy Bats in the trunk murder and put it at the beginning yeah. of the movie. Yeah. And then go back in time and then work our way back to the middle of the movie where that happens. Mm-hmm. Now... I think that is such a profound filmmaking choice. I agree. Because it sets you up. Like, how do you feel when you see that opening moment? Absolutely. I love it because it mirrors what we as an audience had already been conditioned to do since The Godfather, which is to love gangster epics. So when he slams the car door and they they have the the still frame on him and he says, As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. You as the audience are like, I'm in. Yep. Because I know that feeling. Because watching it on screen, I would love to live what happens on screen, but I don't want to do it in real life. But I'm happy to live in the fantasy. And I think that's what it, it hooks the audience immediately. And, and uh, Ray Liotta's voiceover works so well oh, to do that. Yeah. Well, but, it, but it's also corrupting because you've just seen a horrific image. Absolutely. And when they open up that trunk and you yeah. see Billy Bats, and he looks like, you know, some meat that's yeah. still moving. Frank Vincent. And then, yeah. and, and then they drive, you know, Joe Pesci stabs him with a big butcher knife. Yeah. And and they shoot and it was like oh my god it's like intense intense violence right at the beginning right and then you have this all my life I always wanted to be a gangster right into rags to riches yes, great, great music and you're like oh I'm onto something yeah I mean because because and you don't and the fact that they put that first mm-hmm. corrupts or foreshadows all the joy of the next sequence yeah is that if you just started with all my life I want to be a gangster without seeing Billy Bats in the trunk of the car and went into this romantic view of being a gangster, yeah. I think the movie would not work very well. I mean, I, it would, I mean, there's still so much genius in right. it, but putting that first makes a huge difference. Well, I agree, because it works on, on multiple levels, right? You as an audience member, you're watching that film, you're going, okay, what I'm watching is not right. But yet these actors have such incredible force of personality, I'm immediately on their side as, a protagon- as protagonists. But then you, just in that moment when I've seen a very horrific image, you take me to this fantastically up lifting an right. awesome fun song from the 40s or 50s of Tony Bennett singing Rags to Riches, which is, of course, harking back to what's going to happen to Henry Hill as he goes from Rags to Riches, essentially, back to in rags. his own life story, and back to Rags in his own yeah. life story, right, exactly. Um, and so, and, and it frames this, and we should talk, um, is that, I think we talked about with Quentin Tarantino, he's one of the great soundtrack yes. music song choice directors, 
Scorsese's the best. Absolutely. I think he's the number one. Mm -hmm. And this movie in particular, mm -hmm. every song hits mm -hmm. in this powerful way. And this is not easy. Yeah. Because in terms of editing, in terms of the rights to actually get all these songs, to get them all to hit just right, yeah. it's easier to do with a composer because you just say, on this cut, I want the downbeat to happen and we're going to be in 3-4 time and yeah. we're going to get to there. When you have to make a song do it, you have to fit the editing to the song and the song to the editing. It's not easy. Well, I may be speaking out of turn here, but I think what Scorsese does really well is he finds popular songs, pop culture songs, yeah. and slides them in effectively. Whereas I think Quentin does a little more of dumpster diving in his mind of songs right. and, it, and introduces us to a lot of these kind of lesser known songs that are good songs and we uh, put them into our lexicon of pop culture. But Scorsese has so much of a plethora because he's lived through all these decades of yeah. these songs coming out, you know? Yeah, and I think he. I think I think there's a deeper, no disrespect to Mr. Tarantino, no. there's a deeper thing going on with Scorsese in the complexity of the way he uses those songs. Very well said, yes. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about voiceover, because this is a yeah. voiceover movie. Yeah, basically. Um, if you listen to screenwriting teachers, and I, I, don't, I don't really agree with this, is they will say, voiceover is a sign of weak screen. Yes, I hate that. I've always hated that. It's not true. Well, what is true is that weak screenwriters often turn to voiceover to mm -hmm. solve their script problems. Right. But the problem isn't the voiceover. Right. The problem is your shitty screenwriting. Right. There are great voiceover movies, and this is among the top five, yeah. I think. The voiceover is amazing. Yeah. And, and, and Scorsese does this thing that he does also in Casino, uh, which is he is one of the most entertaining explainers of a system of any filmmaker mm -hmm. I can think of. Mm -hmm. That opening 20 minutes yeah. of learning about how these wise guys work mm -hmm. is awesome and entertaining mm -hmm. and captivating. For a guy who moved all day long, Paulie didn't talk to six people. If there was a union problem or, say, a beef in the numbers, then only the top guys can meet with Paulie to discuss the problem. Everything was one-on-one. -on -one. Paulie hated conferences. He didn't want anybody hearing what he said and he didn't want anybody listening to what he was being told. Hundreds of guys depended on Paulie, and he got a piece of everything they made. It was tribute, just like in the old country, except they were doing it here in America. And all they got from Paulie was protection from other guys looking to rip them off. And that's what it's all about. That's what the FBI could never understand. That what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. And Leota's not in any rush to get there. Yeah. I think that's what helps you. The pace of which, the way he delivers that dialogue, he makes sure that you've got the first fact to move on to the next fact, to move on to the next fact. So you are connecting the dots as he's moving along. He's not going fast enough to lose you, but he's going fast enough to keep your attention and still maintain the information in your brain, which I think is so well done. And a lot of people don't recognize that because of I me mean, being a voiceover artist, I know how directors are in that booth and what they're trying to tell you to right. do in there so that people will grasp what you're doing. Yeah. And he's so charming yes. and charismatic yeah. that you really like him. Yeah. Even though what you're watching, his life choices are like, oh my God, you're happily choosing to be a criminal. Yeah. Right at, and to the point of coming into conflict with your father. And, and there's these subtle moments of, this is fun, this is fun, this is fun, this is serious. Yeah. This is fun. Uh, the, one of the first ones being the mailman. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, so his dad beats him up because mm -hmm. he's not going to school. He whips him with the belt. Yeah. I grew up like that. I don't know if you did, but nah. I certainly got the belt when I, didn't, was, when I did something wrong. Yeah, there was no, there was no belt. It's, it's purely a suspenders house. Um, 
Uh, no, I did not get the belt. <laughs> wow. Um, or the suspenders, because those little clippy things would probably hurt a lot. Yeah, they uh, would hurt a lot, yeah. especially on the end, yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, I didn't get that. <laughs> um, and and then the kid rats out the mailman, yeah. and they put the mailman's head in a pizza oven. You know this kid? Yeah. You know where he lives? Yeah. Deliver mail to his house? It's yeah. Well, from now on, any letter from that school to that kid's house comes directly here. You understand? Yeah. If another letter from that school goes to that kid's house, in the fucking oven, you're going to go ahead first. That was it. No more letters from truant officers. No more letters from school. In fact, no more letters from anybody. And what's so funny is, on the one hand, you're kind of in this fantasy place of like, oh, wow, to have this kind of power. On the right. other hand, you're like, the poor mailman. You know, it's like he didn't bother anybody. Well, I think that's what Sopranos did really, really well to yeah, correlate sure. that to Goodfellas. Sopranos did a great job. Well, I don't of, think there is Sopranos without Goodfellas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And they quote it all the time in Sopranos. Yeah. But like Sopranos is a great job of showing you how this glamorous lifestyle affects these smaller people in right. their lives and unfortunate victims of this lifestyle who have no business or have no, are just doing their jobs, being regular yeah. human beings, and they get caught up in, in the crap that is this stuff. And the mailman is a great example. Once again, great job by Scorsese with stop. Stopping that still frame at that moment, yep. and the voiceover of Ray Liotta saying that he never, by that point, he never delivered mail in my house again. Like two right. weeks, it got to the point that my dad or my mom had to go down to the school yep. to get my report card. I thought that was brilliant. Oh yeah, and yeah. the timing, everything, and and you know, one of the great heroes of Martin Scorsese is Thelma Schumacher. Yes, who's the editor? Yeah. edited I think all of his films, uh, just about. Yeah, and she, you know, and, and I know I've said before on this podcast that I think that the relationship between the editor and the director is the, the most intimate one in filmmaking. Yeah. And obviously this great genius director has stuck with this great mm-hmm. genius editor for a reason. And the precision of the music, the picture, mm-hmm. the voiceover, the moment, the acting on screen, the camera movements is so perfect in Goodfellas. Right, right. And that opening sequence is a textbook. Yeah. Uh, but it also solidifies us that Henry is a good person. Like from really? the, from the Genesis, yeah. The fact that like when he uses all the towels to, when that guy's been shot, like you get the sense. I don't think he sold out the mailman to save his life. I think he sold out the mailman stupidly. Like I think he innocently didn't know what he was involved in. And then when they stuck the mailman's head in the thing, it really showed him what he's what he's in for, right? But he's still a kid, so it, and I think he still enjoys it. But like when that guy gets his arm cut or shot, and he's using all the different uh, uh, aprons or whatever towels to stop the guy from bleeding that shows you he has a good heart he's he's not but he's not necessarily a full like he's how can i say this he has a good heart so he's not necessarily a villain in my mind you may disagree but in my mind i don't think so. i don't know i think he's got a good heart he just followed a path like i mean does he do certain things that are not evil sure is he rushing to to cover up that guy's is but is he rushing to help him or is he rushing to cover it up I think he's rushing to help him of course the guy's screaming going I've been shot I've been stabbed or whatever because because it wasn't like VD or any of his friends did it. it it was he just saw some guy running down the street with his arm and bloody and so he ran out as a good person to try to wrap but that up guy's a, that guy's a mobster too Bro, he's one maybe. of them I don't know it seems to imply that <laughs> I didn't get that I maybe, just got maybe you're right stabbed. now we I have to think about whether or not he is <laughs> I mean the, the, this is fascinating to see the things that you get from the scenes that I get differently I always love these moments but yes well, go well, ahead I mean it's a, it's, a, it's first of all it's a very dramatic moment it is it's extremely violent yeah. it's violent in this way that scorsese is choosing to be violent in this film mm-hmm. which is he, you're gonna look at it and it's gonna feel very real right you know it's not romantic violence it's not big mm-hmm. action movie violence right. it's like gross 
and dirty and messy and screaming. It's in your face. It's in your face. But but I think he finds these moments throughout the film to redeem Henry in a lot of ways. When he beats up that guy for sexually assaulting Lorraine Bronco. Absolutely. Once again, this is him solidifying. So you know that Henry has a moral compass. For better or worse, he has a moral... When he tries to save... When he saves Morty as many times as he does before Morty actually finally gets killed, that's his moral compass. Like, he's not You're right. You know what? what? You're you're right. Tommy's the killer. Tommy's Tommy's a a fucking villain. Well, Tommy's a psychopath. Yes, and that's what I mean. There are a lot of killers. And so is De Niro to a degree, but I don't think Henry is... First impulse is to kill. In fact, I don't know if we see him kill anybody in the movie. No, no, you're 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 actually right. I'm going to yeah. back up a little bit. Yeah, I won't go as far as say he's a good person. No, I know not at all. Not at all. But I will. I will certainly say that he has the most reluctance to. Uh, you know, we see mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. His reactions to things and his discomfort with right. certain things that happen in the movie is very clear. Right. And you are right. If we didn't have that in the film. This movie wouldn't work. I agree. We would not care about him, yeah. right? I mean, we in that we do forgive the cheating because Lorraine Bracco keeps coming back to him. So this, that's a personal thing. Like whatever your feelings are about him cheating on his wife and the way it's portrayed, that's your personal thing as a viewer. I don't think it's enough to make him a villain, right? But I do, th- I do think that it's a it's a negative part of his personality. Well, be- but then again, that's the culture of that time. Maybe this is a, a word we have to define a little yeah. bit because. Like when you say villain, yes. it's like okay, Hans Gruber in Die Hard is the villain. Is a villain. Sauron in Lord of the Rings <laughs> is a villain. Yes. Darth Vader is the villain. Yes, you know, uh, in I don't know that we have villains in the real world. You know what I mean? Like Hitler was a villain. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is, is that for oh, most of us, oh, the, people who do evil that, all the time. Yeah, well, okay. like someone whose motivation is to be bad. You know what I yeah. mean? I mean, or or. or well, I don't know quite how to frame it. Is that because Whitey Bulger is a villain? That's a villain. Well, 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 and this is why I say maybe we have to define our, yeah. our terms a little bit. Is that there are people that do all sorts of bad things. Yeah. In my mind, a villain is a movie character. You know what ah, I mean? A yes, story yes, yes, character. Yes, yes. Okay. He is the uh, the opposite to the hero. Right. We have a hero and a villain. And in the real world, most of us are just living our lives. Yeah. And that it's sort of more of I'm, I'm thinking through this now mm-hmm. as I'm saying it, mm-hmm. but that. If you were at the gates of heaven to have St. Peter weigh your good deeds and bad deeds yeah. on a scale, which side does the scale go to? Right. And if it tips 1% towards evil, I don't say you're a villain. Yeah. But I also don't say he's a good guy. Well, that's fair. And Henry Hill is not a good guy. He's a bad guy. <laughs> there are things he does which are good mm-hmm. or good-ish. Yeah. I mean, but his entire choice of life is not good. You and I are going to have to agree to disagree on this one. But go ahead, yes. Well, how can you say he's a good I guy? Because I think he has a moral compass. I, don't, I, I agree. I don't, think he's a bad, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he's a guy trying to survive in that business. At least what we're seeing in the film, right? I haven't read the book. So maybe in the book he I've does the book do worse things or whatever. And so maybe he's not the greatest guy. But he is a gangster. So in essence, in essence he is a bad guy to be a gangster because yeah. he's not turning anybody in who's killing people. He's not... You know, testifying against Tommy, he's not testifying against Jimmy the Gent. He's not well, doing he any joined. of that. Right, I mean, he, he joined joins, the team exactly. You know, like once when you... they bring Frank Vincent or the guys, his, whatever his name was, to get the shine box, whatever his character, I forget his name. His character, Billy Bats. Billy Bats. When they bring uh, he, Ray Liotta is willingly participating in this whole thing. He's well, he is reluctant. His, I mean, that, this yeah. is where I agree with you mm-hmm. is that when well, the moment that that Jimmy and Tommy start beating him up, right? Ray Liotta is not happy about that. right. But he continues to participate. He right. doesn't sell him out. Well, and this is and, and this is once this is really key to the movie. I think, it, which is why I'm glad we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Is that the movie is very much about loyalty 
And establishing yeah. a code of honor mm -hmm. is that there is a code of honor. It's established very early in the, early in the movie, which is you give Polly a piece. Yeah. Like that's the, yeah. he, and he, he says it, he, Jimmy did the right thing. He gave Polly a piece and this is how the system works. And when we first, when young Ray Liotta, and by the way, the casting of young uh, Ray Liotta and young Tommy is like. So perfect. Perfect. Hendry. Yeah. I love he says it with a D. There's no yeah. D in Henry, but, he, but, but young Tommy puts it in there. It's, it's so good. Yeah. And uh, the first thing that happens, he's out selling cigarettes yeah. at the back of a truck. He gets popped by the police. Congratulations. Here's your graduation. Thing. I'm a I pinched. Everybody gets pinched, but you did it right. You told them nothing, and they got nothing. I thought you'd be mad. Man, I'm not mad. I'm proud of you. You took your first pinch like a man, and you learned the two greatest things in life. Well... Look at me. Never ride on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. Hey, here he is, here he is. Oh, you broke your cherry. And so they establish really early, like, this is the moral code. Yeah. You do not rat anybody out. And, right. of course, what does the movie end up being? Yeah. Is it's a series of everybody ratting everybody else out. Right. Until yeah. his final, final corruption is, in fact, doing the right thing at the end of the movie, which is to rat everybody out. Okay. You know? I mean, that... that <laughs> so there is a moral code. My point is that there, you're right. There is a moral code. That I don't know we're if he did the right with. thing, but okay. Yeah. I mean, he saved himself. He saved himself. That, well, that, and that's the thing that's interesting too about this, Steve. Well, is maybe this is the problem, though. Maybe yeah. this is our issue: is that the right thing within the context of being the gangster is you're correct is not to do that. Right. But the right thing in terms of our society is to not help the fucking gangsters. They are bad guys and murderers, and to put them in jail is the right thing. Yeah, but once you are participatory of it, then you you don't get any any points for finally doing uh, the right thing after after being a witness to so many bad things. At oh, least in my mind, I don't think he gets no, points I don't think, for it. I'm not giving him points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm well, you said he does the right thing. It is the end. right thing. Okay. But I just give him no points. I'm sure you Because he's a scumbag. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. You're What's right. really weird, the right by the way, we should point out Henry Hill died in 2012, I think. Yes, recently. And if you look, you there are interviews with him. You can go see this guy talking, and it's funny because I watched some of the behind the scenes after watching the movie again. And there's interviews. There's Henry Hill, and he's talking about yeah, the movie's yeah. very accurate, and we did this, and this is why we did this. And I hated that guy yeah. so much. Well, and Steve, this is a good point you bring up because this novel. And this film... Not a novel. Well, this is nonfiction. I'm sorry, nonfiction. Yeah, that's non key. I'm sorry, this is nonfiction book, and this movie is told through Henry's eyes. Yeah. So Henry is manipulating the whole thing to make us see him as a as a, as a guy who was a good he guy. To say villain there. Who, yeah, I almost did. As a good guy <laughs> who caught caught up in the life. Right. And that's complete and utter horseshit in my opinion. So but I accept the movie separately from the book, separately from the character. It's a movie. So I enjoy the movie for that reason alone, but in my mind you you have to factor that in that it's being told from Henry's point of view. Oh, so yeah. we don't see Jimmy all the good things that Jimmy probably might have done on the side. We don't see and if Tommy did anything good things. Like there's not a lot of good shown with Tommy and Jimmy to balance their characters out but there's a lot shown with Henry because it's told from his point of view well let's talk about them for yeah. a sec because there are so the first big characters we meet are Jimmy and Tommy and Jimmy is introduced fairly early as a made maybe to look slightly younger Robert De Niro when we first meet him and it's interesting. We got to talk about Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese because yeah. this is one of the great actor director collaborations in the history of film yeah and I think it's this and then Cape Fear and then they've never worked together yeah. since, right? DiCaprio stepped in for some unknown yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, and man, De Niro and Scorsese, there's something that happens when those two work together. Oh, yeah. 
That is amazing. Yeah. And his character, if you look at him in Mean Streets, you look at him Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, you could look at him in New York, New York too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you look at him in this, they're all different. Mm-hmm. They're really, or King of Comedy. Yeah. They're all really, really different. And you see the range of this guy. And when and it's interesting seeing De Niro come in in this movie as not exactly the elder statesman. He kind but, of is, though. But, but the adult, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And the charisma with which he walks into that space when we have young Tommy and, non, and young Jimmy. Right. Is amazing. Or young Henry. I mean. He's guiding them both. Even that scene where, where Pesci shoots Spider and kills Spider. Oh, yeah. Jimmy's like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? Right. I was giving him, I was giving him, like, what's, what, why would you kill him? That's the thing that didn't, that's the difference. He is the elder statesman in the relationship with Tommy and Henry. He is the elder statesman trying to guide them, but he knows he needs them to make the money they're making. They work well together as a threesome. Absolutely. And what's most strange about Jimmy. Um, is that as the film goes on, like when you meet him, mm-hmm. you're like, this is a solid oh, guy. He's awesome. And yeah. then as the film goes on, Jimmy does more and more things where you go, yeah. hold on. Yeah. I thought we could trust this guy. I thought he was kind of our partner. Yeah. And now you go, oh, he's he's as scary and maybe scarier than Tommy. Yes, he is scarier than Tommy because Tommy can't control himself. Yeah. Whereas Jimmy knows exactly what he's doing. When he is stomping, and it's one of my favorite things, and I imitate it all the time whenever De Niro, that shot from below where they're stomping on Billy Batts' face, it's De Niro who is cocking his foot before he slams it down. That's the difference. Tommy is just kicking. De Niro cocks his foot. That's a a measured response. That's a thoughtful movement. And that means he is effective in his movements. He knows what he's doing. He takes that extra moment to decide what the right thing to do is in his mind, and he does it. Whereas Tommy's just like, I'm losing control. And there's the difference. Well, and I think we, we need to deconstruct this moment even further because I think you're yeah. totally right. And But to set it up, we need to introduce oh, Tommy. Yeah. Sure, sure. So Tommy, Joe Pesci. So good. He is one of those actors who is just, man, there's Joe Pesci. And so good, but between like... Lethal Weapon, yeah, <laughs> <coughs> Raging Bull, Joe Pesci, right, and Tom, this character I think is the greatest, yeah, he ever played. Oh, absolutely, and he is so scary because he is a complete psychopath mm-hmm. or sociopath, yeah. and you just like, why is this guy around? Mm-hmm. His temper, his violence, his complete lack of morals yeah. or connection to other humans is really, really scary. Mm-hmm. And of course, the key scene to the really scariness is the. You think I'm a clown? Yeah. Really funny. Really funny. What do you mean I'm funny? It's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Right. Funny how? Just, what? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? well, let me understand this, because I don't you know. Maybe it's me. I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> I almost had him. I almost had him. In that scene, and it's one of, of course, the most famous ones, in it, uh, Joe Pesci is 
doing this act mm-hmm. about do I amuse you? Yeah. And it gets really genuinely scary. Yes, it does. And the rumor, which I don't know if it, if you've done it in the research, it had it verified, is that Scorsese told Pesci to improv this whole scene and put the camera, put cam- two cameras to show... No, so that's not exactly okay. what it is. So tell so, me what it so is. So here's what it is. Is that, first of all, this is a story that happened to Joe Pesci. Right. Where In he, real life. Yeah, where he was Ray Liotta. Oh, And another funny. guy went off and said, oh, do I amuse you? Yeah. And, and scared Pesci, and then it ended up as a joke. <laughs> he tells Scorsese this story. Scorsese says, we got to put it in the movie. Yeah. They had a long rehearsal process, and during the rehearsal process, they did a lot of improv. And one of the techniques that Scorsese used, which I've actually used too in plays that I did, uh-huh. is he recorded the improvs and then wrote script. So, so, oh. so that, that this came out of improvs they gotcha. did in rehearsal. Okay. But once they got on the set, it's really scripted. Right. And Pesci will say it too. It's like, is that, that for the most part, it's really hard to improvise complicated scenes on sure, camera. I'm it's sure. just not a thing that's easy to do. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't improv. It was came from improv, but it wasn't improv on the set. Right. And the thing that's so important about that scene is that scene is the opposite of the spider scene or yeah. of the Billy Bat scene because it's here is Joe Pesci looking like he's going crazy, but he really isn't. Yeah. And in these other scenes, it's where you think that Joe Pesci is joking, but he really isn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about spider yeah because this is another big turning point in the movie that's really upsetting so spider is the young kind of teenage waiter in one of the clubs Mm -hmm. and he's kind of awkward and he is getting some shit from tommy from not delivering a drink and yeah tommy's just fucking with him and horrible to him yeah and then he says hey let's dance what like those western movies and he starts shooting at his feet and he shoots spider in the foot that's the first one yeah and it's just like, what the fuck? And, and the reactions from Henry and from Jimmy is like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. And then we get the second spider scene. And it is a really upsetting scene. Mm-hmm. Spider now limping yeah. with a big bandage on his foot, delivers Jimmy the drink, or Tommy the drink. Tommy starts to give him shit. Yeah. And Spider kind of softly goes, go fuck yourself. Well, encouraged by Jimmy. Yeah. Right? This is the thing. Jimmy encourages him. Oh, you're him. right. He goes, are you going yeah. to let him talk to you Is he going to talk to you like that? Like, and he's being playful. He's playing ball busting. But Tommy doesn't know. Tommy's embarrassed in front of And this is how a psychopath thinks. You're singling me out. Or a sociopath, you're singling me out. And you're embarrassing me in front of other people. Right. You think you're better than me. Oh, that oh, that brings out that anger in that moment. And, so well played by Michael Imperioli, who plays Christopher right. Moltisanti in The Sopranos later. But yeah, what a, what a powerful moment when... Pesci does it, and Jimmy's reaction is so, he's so angry. Well, if you watch in the moment, Jimmy's encouraging yes. Tommy. He's saying, you going to let him talk to you that? Come yeah, on, come on, come on. He's being and then, playful. And then Tommy pulls out a gun, shoots right. him three times in the chest, and the shot in the moment before he fires that gun where you're just kind of looking at Pesci's Ugh. face is this kind of stony, mm-hmm. and it is a really, again, we talk about this mood, the turning points in this film yeah. where you go, oh, this isn't fun. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I was having fun half an hour ago. Right. This all seemed great. This is not, they just killed this kid. Right. It's a horrible. Even horrible when he thing. shoots him in the foot in the first scene to set up the second yeah. scene, you're like, oh, man, what's wrong with you? You know, you kind of excuse it a little bit because you're like, oh, this guy just lost and he shot him in the foot. He didn't kill him. He shot him in the foot. When he kills him, you're right, uh, Steve. That's where you see the full age of Joe Pesci as an actual yeah. human being yeah. and the loss of emotion in that moment. Yeah. And there's not even anger, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling, feeling beyond anger that, he just he knows he's going to kill this guy and he does it and it's just like whoa well and the reactions of the group yeah 
while they are, what the fuck are you doing? Why are they? In the end, they're like, okay, I guess we got to go clean this yeah, up. Yeah, we got to wrap them in a carpet, see, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You see, when my friends shoot somebody in front of me, <laughs> I end the friendship. I go, I think we're done now. Well, unless you've been encouraging the situation, then maybe you take some responsibility. I suppose you're right. I probably shouldn't encourage people to shoot people. <laughs> but it's just like, they just go, oh, this is what we have to do. Yeah. And this is why we go to... This is why I go to these are they're all bad guys mm-hmm. because at a certain point you hang out with the sociopath long enough right while he kills multiple people. What do they I, say? If you lay with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Don't complain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are bad guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really sets it up. And so what we set up is by the time we get to the scene with Billy Bats, which is some other made guy who comes out of prison, it seems like, mm-hmm. and he knew Tommy when he was young, and yeah. now he's giving him shit. And he's busting his balls, to use the term they use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Hanno, you're my life. All right, good. You're getting too big on me Just now. Don't go busting my balls, Billy, okay? Hey, Tommy, if I was going to break your balls, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box. <laughs> it escalates, it escalates, and then there's a moment of peacemaking, and then Billy Bats goes further. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Motherfucking hey, mutt! You, you fucking piece of shit! Fucking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on, say, come on! Yeah. And they start to tussle, and then... Tommy says, hey, keep him around here, which yeah. I guess they do. Yeah. And then when everybody's out of the club, uh, Tommy attacks him. And this is why it's so interesting, because you see the three characters, Ray Liotta, De Niro, and Pesci. Yeah. Pesci, apeshit crazy. Yes. De Niro, as you describe, is consciously doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going like, why? Yeah. Because he knows how dangerous what they're doing is. Right. But what, what is De Niro, which we find out later when they kill Pesci... Uh, by the way, this is the maybe we should say if you haven't seen the movie, what are you doing listening to this? Go yeah. see the movie and turn, and then come back and, and pick up. Yeah, we've already spoiled a bunch yeah, of stuff, true. and it's just going to be more. <laughs> but when he when Pesci dies, uh, De Niro's reaction, or they killed Pesci, De Niro's reaction, and then Leota's voiceover. It was between it was a Sicilian thing. It was between the Italians because Jimmy is half Irish, therefore right. not fully part of it. So the he and the, so is Henry. And so is Henry, right? Yeah. So the fact that they don't understand, like they don't fully get what it's like to kill a made man, they don't get it fully, and I think that's why they're okay with I it or they go they along it. with it. I think they get well, it. Well, then why would they do it? It doesn't make any well, sense. Because this why, is why, why, why would De Niro do it? Because that's it signs his death weird, warrant. But that's what's weird about the scene. See? Clearly, Henry says it because in the voiceover, yeah, like right after that scene, he says this is a made man. Yeah, but he's doing it in, re- in as a as a retrospective thing, not an in the moment thing. And it's I think that's the difference. Tr- I, I, how could you grow up in this world and, you know, literally around it all the time well, and not know this kid? And, and, it's and, a good point. It's a good point, Stephen. You may absolutely be right. In my mind, I, res- I rationalize it by saying because they're not fully – because Jimmy could never be a made man. Therefore, he, don't, he doesn't, like, understand the un- – like, Pesci would have access to what it's like to understand the made man right. status and the specificity of it. Maybe Jimmy doesn't or never had. Therefore, he thought they could get away with it. Like he thought they they could they could hide it under. No one would really care. He's a lower guy on the totem pole. Maybe in his mind they could get away with this murder because Pesci is doing it. Who is a full Sicilian, not Jimmy. Like Pesci is the focus of maybe, the murder. Maybe. And by the way, but I, I could this be wrong. Is, I could this be totally is not. Wrong. Sometimes we'll, we'll nitpick a moment yeah. because. Because maybe I think that oh that's hurting the film, that's not what I think of this. I'm not I'm not mm, questioning mm. it because I think this is poor filmmaking. I'm questioning it because I go, it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. it, but but because this is key with Jimmy's character is this is the moment. I mean, this is the turning point of the film yeah. first of all. But because and, and we're now back at that trunk of the car 
which is where we started the film. So it's a really key moment. Yeah. But this is the moment where you stop trusting Jimmy. Yeah. You know, and you trust him less and less and less as it goes on. Because we thought it was super responsible Jimmy. Yeah. Young guy trying to do the right thing within the context of being a gangster, Henry yeah. Hill. And psychopath Tommy. Right. And but when when Jimmy just immediately jumps on that guy and helps kill him, right. it's like, oh, uh, where can I be that mm -hmm. I can feel safe? And the answer is, of course, nowhere. You yeah. can't feel safe in this movie. And well, as it goes on, less and less. And you make that's fantastic point you make, Steve. And absolutely, you you trust him less and less. Start of that moment. It's a great. Uh, my thing is that I think these three have rebellious streaks in their nature. Yeah. Uh, throughout the movie, which is what I think brought them together. There's a, there's an understanding or a connection that happens that's unspoken. When you meet somebody, you just sense they're just like you, or they have, they have enough of the, of you in them that you can feel a connection, understand that person, and you become fast friends with that person. I think that's what happens here. The fact that Ray uh, Henry Hill later on is selling drugs behind Vitti's back when he shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Jimmy with the killing of of bats, and then Tommy who's just randomly killing because he thinks he can. Yeah. You know, even when it's not necessary. These are the things that they have within themselves, and it makes them an interesting threesome and a great, great characters to watch on screen, but ultimately doomed characters. Well, and this is why I think that their their self interest is aligned. Yeah. At the beginning of the film. Yes. And that as time goes on, for various reasons, their self interest ceases to be aligned. Yeah. And this is where this is why this question of, and I think it's the key, and why we probably argued about it mm -hmm. is in is Henry Hill a good guy? Yeah. Is that that's is like, or is he just a good guy when his self interest is aligned with what the system of morality he's entered into is. Mm -hmm. and Valid point, man. And, and it's, it's complicated to assess out, you know, yeah. how this works. Yeah. Let's talk about Paul Servino. Yes, please. He says almost nothing. <laughs> which, which they talk about in the film. And he just steals it. Yeah. And something you should know, Paul Servino is nothing like this guy. No, no. He's a trained opera singer. He is intellectual yeah. and artistic he's goofy and, if you yeah. see him in interviews very goofy yeah, yeah he's yeah he's funny and yeah. smart and will quote poetry at mm -hmm. you and he just it's 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 as indelible a mob boss as brando yeah to me yeah with much less you know he just kind of is there and, and a lot of that is Servino, and a lot of that is direction. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. where you're putting the camera. Like, you put a camera, and you put a lot of chaos going on around a silent person. What are we looking at? That right. silent person. That and they take on weight, not just physical weight, but emotional and profound, yeah. uh, you know, veritas. Yeah. Uh, it, it, his performance is great. And in the upcoming betrayals of him yeah. that Henry Hill's going to do, it's, you feel really bad for him. He's a papa bear. Yeah. He's the papa bear of the clan. Right, yeah. he, and he like he says he never uses the phone. He makes his poor brother run back and forth in the rain. He never has to do anything, and it's, he moves slowly because he doesn't need to move at all. Right. And so people come to him, and so when the betrayal happens to him, you know you feel for him because he's put it out on the line for Henry. He's helped Henry, and Henry's got himself into his own situation, a bad situation, and. VD can't help him. In. I think is it is it it's feet right? I mean, or am I thinking Paul VD from analyze this? I'm sorry, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I can't remember now. It's Paul Cicero or Paul. Oh, is it Cicero? It starts with a right. C, I think. So for everybody who's been listening, I apologize. You can stop yelling at me. I made the mistake. It's uh, you can you can get angry at me if you like. But he moves. Please get angry at John. <laughs> he really needs to be scolded I, I on can... Twitter. 
as often as possible. Paul Cicero, yes, you're Cicero. Right. I'm sorry. I'm thinking Paul Beatty from Analyze This. So anyway, no, we're going to make so many mistakes in the cinephiles. <laughs> We've already made a bunch, yes. and we appreciate when you call them on them. They're pro- I'll probably say nine wrong things. In the yeah, I'm just going to say it as wild. Paul Beatty. That way, you can use that and put that in replace, so I don't get in trouble. But, yeah. <laughs> but oh, should I go through it now? Now say Paul Cicero. Oh, Paul Cicero, right? Paul Cicero. Yeah. Now I'll go through in. and edit in every time. Oh, uh-huh, that'd be funny. But no, but this is—he's so—he's such a magnetic character, and it's a great use of of uh, Sorvino's face. He's one of these amazing characters in cinema as an actor and as a personality. You see him in so many different, like in in Romeo and Juliet. He's a completely. Sure. He, I think that's the most fully realized Paul Sorvino you'll ever see is in Romeo and Juliet whereas in this he's just this monolith who moves amongst everyone else you know this rock monolith that just kind of slowly moves through everything you know and he does have feels to have a moral center yes and so when he comes when Henry Hill's marriage is in trouble and he comes and he says you gotta make this right I'm not saying you gotta go back there this minute but you gotta go back I mean it's the only way gotta keep up appearances I got the two of them coming over the house every day commiserating the two of them I can't have it you have to do the right thing. You have to go home to the family. You understand? You got to go home. Okay? Look at me. All right? Yeah. All right. I'm going to talk to Kara. I'll straighten this thing out. I know just what to say to her. Okay? I'm going to tell her you're going to go back to her, and everything's going to be just the way it was when you were first married. I'm going to romance. It's going to be beautiful. I know how to talk to her, especially to her. Now, there is certainly self-interest in yeah, the way he's saying, I can't have this. Right. But... You also feel the moral power of Paul Servino, yeah. which is really important. And you need that. And, and, and you feel when they start betraying him, which they do in multiple ways, yeah. like, oh, they're breaking the code. You told me what the code was at right. the beginning, and now you're breaking it. You're right, because they, they're not satisfied with what is going on. They're trying to angle, because they're hustlers. Those three of them are hustlers. They're constantly angling, angling, angling yeah. for their pieces of the pie. And when they pull all the loop, pull off the Lufthansa heist, that's where they think they're set. But unfortunately, it exposes their really horrible, horrible uh, uh, traits. Both Tommy and Jimmy are, are exposed off that heist. Henry, not so much, but certainly Tommy and Jimmy. And that's when, to me, you can connect the Billy Bats thing to the Lufthansa thing. Absolutely. And that's when he's, Jimmy is absolutely a terrible, like a horrible villain, a yeah, horrible character. The, the, so, so to be clear, we're now two-thirds of the way through the movie. This yeah. is the biggest heist of the movie. It's apparently a real story. Yes. $5 million or so that was stolen. Yeah. And Jimmy has told everyone, mm-hmm. which seems responsible, don't spend any of your money. Right. And in walks a guy with his girlfriend in a beautiful new pink Cadillac. Are you stupid or what? Did you hear what I said? Don't buy anything, don't get anything, nothing big. Did you hear what I said? What's the matter with you? What are you getting excited for? What am I getting excited about? Because you're going to get us all fucking pinched, that's why. What are you, stupid? What's the matter with you? I apologize. What's the matter with you? Sorry. What the fuck is the matter with you? What'd you say? Are you being a fucking wise guy with me? I'm sorry. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? What did I tell you? You don't buy anything, you hear me? Don't buy anything. Hey, this is where you just can imagine. I love it. I love it. Can you imagine De Niro being pissed at you? Yeah. Fucking terrifying. No thanks, man. And no by the thanks. way, this is another scene that came out of the improv. Oh. And this is one that maybe was improv on a set a little bit of just like, what were you thinking? I'm sorry. I apologize. Like that scene yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. And then someone else comes in with a mink coat. Yeah. And then you have <laughs> Morty. And Morty. Constantly uh, bitching where his piece of the where pie his is. Money is, and and so uh, on the one hand, you feel yeah. like what the fuck is wrong with these people? Jimmy's being responsible, right? But then what they do essentially is kill everybody. Yep. 
who's involved in this heist. All and the you witnesses. Go like, and this is where your moral or uh, uh, tactical choices yeah. are like, well, this is just your self-interest. Yeah. Because it's really just you want all the money. Yeah. That's really what it is. Yeah. Including, by the way, killing Samuel Jackson. Yes. Who's a very small part in the film. A cameo, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is this great. I know we talked about him before, but right. he's a working actor for a really long time mm-hmm. before, before he blew up. Before yeah. he behind the hit. Well, and this is important, Steve. I think we should stop for a second and just highlight Scorsese does such a great because this is about analyzing the whole film and talk. Scorsese does such a great job of casting and creating oh, yeah. these characters within the film that have like small parts, but they are so memorable. To this day, yeah. I will never forget Jimmy two times. I will never yeah. forget him. I will never forget Frankie Bourbon, who gets hung up in the ice ice truck with yep. the big hair. He's got that hair. Yeah, every, these characters are so well, and the cast is so well done that you they're memorable to you all the way through the film because of their just their personality. Just a great job oh, by yeah. the casting uh, uh, people and Scorsese. Yeah, it's yeah. hugely important because that world feels real. Yes, abs- authentic as hell, no matter well, where they're at. And this is something we haven't said a lot about Scorsese, but he grew up around this world, yeah. not in this world. Right. You know, but he definitely knew these kinds of people mm-hmm. on the street in a real way, yeah. in, in you know, the low-level people, right. in the way that, going back to Coppola, that he did not. Right. Like Coppola wasn't hanging out with The Godfather, no. but Scorsese really was yeah. around people that these were running numbers and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, small time. Yeah, um, was well, like John Singleton in Boys in the Hood. He he knows that he grew up right. around that. He that's yeah. why it was so authentic. That film. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a different thing of there are people. You know, I I really reject the idea that you have to write out of your own experience. I think mm. that it is possible. There are all sorts of great writers who write great stories yeah. that had nothing to do with any way they grew up. You know. Yeah. You know, it's like from Lawrence of Arabia. None of those people were in that era. Yeah, or in, you know what <laughs> I mean. True. That's very to, true. To you know. Uh, uh, Blade Runner, none of us have been in the future yeah, and true. sunny down. You know, it's like there are all sorts of great movies that were written by people that didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. But to make Goodfellas or Mean Streets, you have to have been in that experience. I agree with you completely. I agree or with Boys you in the Hood, as you said, or right. Do the Right Thing, or there are yeah. movies where you, like, it, you, the, the, the reality of the personal experience mm-hmm. is coming through like crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of casting. Yes. Lorraine Bracco. Yes, let's talk about her. Yeah. So, what, the, and this is really interesting. So, again, we we'll go back to our rules of mm-hmm. screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Basic screenwriting thing they tell young writers is who is the movie about? The movie has to be about one person. Yeah. Only can have one point of view, which is not true. And there are a lot of movies that are two handers or ensembles. But one thing that's you've almost never seen in film is a movie that has 35, 40 minutes of voiceover from a particular character. Yeah. And then you hear voiceover from a new character. Yeah. Joe. I couldn't stand him. I thought he was really obnoxious. He kept fidgeting around. Which is so good. Almost never done. And right. it does, because you mentioned before how we don't really see things from a different perspective mm-hmm. with Jimmy and Tommy, but mm-hmm. you do see things from Karen's perspective. Yeah. No question about it. But it's very judgmental. It's very judgmental of the life because she's walking into the life from a completely different place. She's Jewish. She's walking yeah. into the life from a completely different place, seeing it, seeing. And once again, it is, again, deconstructing this myth of this lifestyle and really exposing the underbelly and the ugly underbelly of the lifestyle. You know, when they're show like the, I love I love when she's talking about hanging out with the other wives in the slow. Oh, and you yeah. just and you see like this is this is not anything I would want to be a part of, you know, and the pathetic nature of it to a degree now these women are probably not in pathetic situations that they're aware of but to her 
it does look pathetic to live that kind of life, to be basically a taken woman. And he essentially, she essentially, against knowing it, without knowing it, becomes that as the film progresses, which is why she pulls a gun on Henry when she finds out that he's been, he's had this affair or this mistress for so long. But be- because she is, in her own words, turned on by it. Yes. And it's funny because I think she, in a lot of ways, is us as the audience. Yeah. And is pointing out exactly what we've been experiencing through the first half of the film. Yeah. In the first half of the film, you are being seduced by being a gangster. Yeah. You are looking. And even though you see some violence, you see a mailman, his head put in an yeah. oven. You see the guy shot. You see cars blown up. You see these things happening. Yeah. But you are still with, all my life I wanted to be a gangster. Yeah. You're still there going, this is cool. Yeah. And when she meets him... And he takes her into the Copacabana, and we got to talk yeah. about that shot. Yeah, great is tracking that, shot. Yeah, is that you are with her, and the moment that you again you brought up earlier, she got assaulted by this mm-hmm. guy across the street, mm-hmm. and Henry Hill comes up like the avenging fucking angel mm-hmm. and beats the shit out of that guy. Yep. And she watches, and we watch, and we go, yes, yes, absolutely, because. Once again, the casting of that guy is so well done. Despicably slick. He, ugh, just a slick, disgusting guy. And it works, right? And he, she, she, he hands her the gun. And- Your Are you all right? Are you all right? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Are you all right? I know there are women like my best friends who would have gotten out of there the minute their boyfriend gave them a gun to hide. But I didn't. I got to admit the truth. It turned me on. But the I truth could, is, it turned me on. It turned me on, right? And I have to admit that. And that's this and w- is sometimes the thing, man. Well, and this is this is the thing about this movie is this movie must seduce you first, yeah. And it and it seduces Karen's character for against her better judgment, right? She knows this is a bad idea, yeah. From the from that moment, I mean, she knows he's a gangster, yeah. When he takes, so let's talk about the Copacabana shot. So yes, go ahead. so there are. Um, five or six shots in the history mm-hmm. of filmmaking that are tracking shots, and that means a one, long progressive shot with a lot yeah. of movement that people talk about. Right. We talked about Touch of Evil. The, the, there are yes. two amazing the tracking opening shots. Shot, yes. The opening shot and the one in the apartment is an amazing shot. There's films like The Player. There's Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Um, yes. there's, there's a lot of fantastic tracking shots in film, and this is one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. So we start on the outside parking a car, yep. and with a steady cam shot, we follow... Uh, Karen and Henry into the the back door of the Copacabana, right. passing a long line of people that are waiting to go in. Yeah. We go down into the kitchen. We walk through the maze of the kitchen, and on each moment, Henry Hill is passing off twenty bucks here and twenty bucks there, twenty <laughs> bucks so there. Great. They go upstairs, back into the Copacabana. Yeah. The Mater D flags over waiters who fly a table in. They follow a table flying through the club until it's dropped directly in front of the stage, where another waiters come up and put the little lamp on yeah. and light the lamp and someone else comes up with a bottle of wine and it's all in one shot until we see Henny Youngman saying take my wife please right and it is a remarkable shot in terms mm-hmm. of its technique well, once again the song that's being played is is I think it's Bobby Vinton or whatever yeah Bobby Vinton yeah it's playing over yeah. yeah go ahead and, and it is uh, and a lot of people talk about it for its technical reasons mm-hmm. and this is really hard yeah. by the way they did eight takes and they finished the day early Wow. Surprising. Yeah, because it's so complex. Because whenever you're doing a tracking shot like that, first of all, with this one, they're also, they're writing, you always have to write focus. So the distance of the, 
performers from the camera, there needs to be someone pulling focus, which means they're on a little knob. Yeah. And if they're three feet away, they turn the knob to three feet. And if they're six feet away, they turn it to six. And if they're two feet away, they turn it to two. Um, yeah. And you have to be writing that in real time as you're walking through the space, which is really hard. Yeah. They're also writing exposure, which is even harder, which is another knob because it's too bright outside and darker and then brighter again, right. which is really hard. And you're recording sound. So you have a sound guy who's following with, with a boom mic. Yeah. And there's a lot of, and you have all these actors who have to hit their spots exactly right. So technically, we talk about it a lot yeah. in film school and filmmakers. And a lot of people say, man, I want to do a shot like that. And what always bugs me is they don't ask the question, why do you want to do a shot like that? Yeah. What's the story point? Mm-hmm. And in this movie, there is a story reason why they want to do that all in one shot. Yeah. And it's because it gives you this feeling of breaking the rules mm-hmm. and going through this space and being treated like a king and placed in this perfect spot. Mm-hmm. And if you'd done it in cuts, you could have done it in a whole bunch of shots. Right. It would not have given you the feeling. No. You you feel like you're with them. You feel like you're, you're with walking them. with right behind Karen. You feel like you're walking right behind Karen and and once again this is one of these things that he does to make Henry an interesting, attractive character. It's like, absolutely because attractive. you are caught up with the uh, amazing nature of it all. Because who doesn't want to feel that powerful? Yeah. Who doesn't want to feel that taken care of? Who doesn't want to feel that cool? You know, it appeals yeah. to you as an audience. And we, I want to skip the fucking lines. Of course. And I want to have the best seat. I want to pull wanna... a table out and put it in front of us. This guy's that important. Yeah. More important than any of you guys. We're putting a special table out here in front of us. And wouldn't him. it yeah. be nice to have thousands of dollars to just be handing out of 20s course. to everyone you walk by? Sure. I, I, I have to digress just for a moment. <laughs> okay. so, so one thing I was thinking about watching it this time, and I don't mean to make this a Jewish thing. Okay. Or to make a Jewish stereotype. I like booze. I am a Jewish person. Absolutely. And I watch him throwing away that money and I go, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I just... Because <laughs> I'm so... But like, he's not throwing away the money. <laughs> yes, he is. No, he's tipping the people out of respect to them for what they're doing for him. Yeah, but don't do that. Why not? Because then you have to do another job and you'll go to jail. But that's life. That's the life he's chosen. But that's a terrible choice. <laughs> well, that's why I keep watching. It's like... And this is, you know, my I come from a family of... I don't think I'm cheap. I don't think my family is particularly cheap. <laughs> wow, you don't, okay, you're leading well, into the stereotype. Bit. I know, that's okay, why I'm okay. a little nervous right, about bringing right. this up. But I learned, I was trained, like, yeah. this is how you handle money. Yeah. And if money comes in, if you have a windfall, then you take care of that money and you put it in a place and yeah. make sure to monitor it because you don't know when you're going to have another windfall. Right. You save for a rainy day, and that is what's being responsible. So watching this spending, I was like, well, when you had the first giant 400,000 job, right. you should have been set up. And after the Lufthansa jobs, $5 billion. But these people don't do this to have retirement because plans. Because they're fucking idiots. That's right. Well, it's not like gangsters are fucking Mensa students. Well, obviously, but that's why I just said, the, but that's why like the. Oh, the, shit. Don't shoot me. Don't anybody listen to this. If, you're, if your family's in a game, please don't kill me. Please don't. I'm just, I'm just saying that we don't know that they're normally Mensa students. Oh, I'm going to get we killed. Did say, we, did say, we did say that t- Tommy was a psychopath. Yes. I mean, like we have not said nice things about gangsters. I'm sorry. We apologize to the gangster community. <laughs> That's listening to yeah. us right now. Please don't kill me. <laughs> yes. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. Um, but but it's just <laughs> like I sit there and go, man, if you would manage your money, you wouldn't have to have these horrible things sure. happen to you. That's all. Anyway, okay. Digression <laughs> over. I know it's not part of the film. Um, but this is, uh, I think their relationship is so 
is what sets this film apart. Yeah. You know, we don't see not until Sopranos came out. We don't see this kind of relationship in any other film, right? I mean, Diane Keaton is pretty much a nagging shrill through the whole first right. two movies, right? She's marginalized, she's dismissed, she's not really given equal footing. No matter what anyone says, I will argue this the day I die. She's not given equal footing to Michael Corleone. She isn't, of course not. But who in, argues that point? Well, some people might, and Diane Keaton might herself, which I respect if she I, did. Look, I love Diane Keaton. Yeah. And if you want to come on the show to discuss. <laughs> Please do. You're welcome to. Absolutely. Um, But this, but what we see with Lorraine Bracco is she, she, although she is spinned with it and there is that scene where she gives him a blowjob for the money, you know, to give the money and there is a part of her that rebels against the constraints or what's expected of her as the wife of a gangster. Oh yeah. She doesn't fit in with that crap. Right. And this is what I like about her. Like she confronts him when they're at the, at the uh, prison and starts pulling out the stuff that she's bringing illegally to him, that they're turning a blind eye to, to fuck with him. She visits the, the mistress's apartment and starts slamming on the bells to call her uh, a whore, which is, which is, which is what sometimes some women have done, obviously the history of man, like mankind have done that kind of stuff. bringing the kids. I yep. know it's a, it's the bringing the kids. Yeah, it's the bringing the kids, right? It's, it's, it's the witness because that because what you're doing is you're you're abusing the children. You really are. Like that's what's so horrible watching. You're showing the thing. really ugly aspects of a relationship or of love. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is you know, it's like oh hi therapy. Yeah, welcome to the rest of your life. <laughs> right. You know, and it all culminates in her pulling the gun on Henry and straddling him, which I think is a very sexy. I think it's a very sexy scene. It a. is, uh, but. Uh, just the colors, the costuming, which is so, and we should talk, we should touch on that. Definitely give credit to the costuming Great, that they yeah. do to evoke the era, the cinematography, all that really does put you in the era of whatever era they're in, time, decade they're in, it really does put you in there. And I think that scene in the 70s, obviously she's rolling on top of him, she has that gun, the way her hair is, everything, just waking up to it. But then his reaction is so powerful too, like, Karen, I love you, you know I love you. But still, I couldn't hurt him. How could I hurt him? I couldn't even bring myself to leave him. The truth was that no matter how bad I felt, I was still very attracted to him. Why should I give him to someone else? Why should she win? Karen, just put it down. You know I love you. What, are you fucking crazy, Karen? Are you crazy? Huh? I got enough to worry about getting fucking whacked on the street. I gotta fucking come home. I gotta fucking come home for this. I ain't got enough to deal with. I gotta come home to this. You know, it's all so It's crazy. So to set up what the scene is, this is where he's having affairs. Yeah. And she has tried and she's tried and she's accused him and she's confronted him. She's confronted the mistress and nothing's happened. So Mm -hmm. one morning, Henry Hill wakes up to a, you know, a revolver inches from his face right. the hammer pulled back her finger on the trigger and she's right on the verge of killing him right. and there's no question in my mind that he's really close to death in that yes scene. it's not like she's she's it, it's not like oh she doesn't have the guts to do it right she is debating doing mm-hmm. it and one little crying tremor and she's pulling that trigger right and we should talk about what the filmmaking is because it's always interesting to picture mm-hmm. how is that shot right well she's not on henry hill right she's on the cameraman Oh, right. Exactly. Michael, I think it's Michael Balhas. Okay. Is his name. So she's straddling the cameraman. <laughs> she has a camera. The The gun is not pa- 
pointed at his face. Right. The gun is pointed directly at the lens of the camera. And she is talking into the camera. Her eye, normally we rarely, we call it eyeball the lens or eyeballing the camera. Yes. We rarely do that. We, we look just off to one side. But here she's looking right down the barrel of the lens, yeah. which means she's looking into her own reflection. Yeah. Um, and um, Ray Liotta is in the room, but he's off to the side somewhere throwing mm-hmm. lines at her. Um, and when you do the opposite of that shot, you have Ray Liotta lying in bed with mm-hmm. the cameraman straddling him, not mm-hmm. not Lorraine Bracco, yeah. and he is looking directly into a lens. Yes, and for that's a really hard way to act. I'm sure. Yes, it is. Um, really hard, and the intensity and the passion and the honesty in both of their performances mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah. And then the way Ray Liotta gets here off him yeah. is violent and brutal and scary. It is initially calming and then violent and brutal and scary yeah. because he is capable of that. He does slap her, right? But he yeah. do, he could go further yeah. and he doesn't in that moment. Because once again, I think there's a piece of him that understands the moral compass of the situation. He knows he's he was he's doing wrong to her. And he does care about her. Yeah, yeah, of course he, he loves her. I think he loves her as much as he can love anyone. He does love her. And I think yeah. she loves him too. And this is and this is something that to digress myself a little bit, I've had a number of friends over the last 10 years who've gone through divorces who have kids. And they've stayed and they've tried to stay in situations with men who are abusive to them either verbally or physically or cheating right. on them uh, because They've chosen to have children with this man, and it's really hard for them to leave the situation. And so to me, she's very relatable and understandable, and I get mm-hmm. it. You know, uh, It's not just about her being attracted to the lifestyle. There's more involved now once you have kids, once you share a life. The separation is so difficult. And a lot of women, or a lot of men too, like just have a really hard time with a divorce or with a separation. So you get it. You know, And she, she's so great in the movie. Lorraine Bracco is so fantastic in the movie, this character, giving her so many layers and depth that we can uh, gravitate to and understand. You know? Yeah, she she goes from, she has so much range because mm-hmm. there are scenes where you go, oh, she's awesome. Yeah. Like in the scene where she confronts him in, after he... Dumps her, after, stands her up? Stands her up yeah. and she confronts him in front of all the other That's wise guys. as hell, man. Nobody does that to me. Who the hell do you think you are? Frankie Valley or some oh. kind of big shot? Slow down, slow down, all right? I forgot. I thought it was next week. It was Friday. It was this Friday and you agreed, so you're a liar. Come on, we can talk about this, all right? Take it easy. Talk about it? Talk to you after what you just did to me? I remember, she's screaming on the street, and I mean loud, but she looked good. I'll think about it. It's going to cost you, Hill. It's going to cost you a lot. these great eyes, just like Liz Taylor's. And you could see them, him liking it. Yeah, of course. And then being flirty with her, and you go, oh, she's got so much strength. Yeah. And you see her wonder and joy at the wedding. Yeah. You know, where she's kind of in this, yeah. swept up in this world. Yeah. And then you see her just insane craziness when in the height of the Janice girlfriend thing. Yes. Screaming at the door. Right. And then you see her really becoming a co- Conspirator, yes, is a drug dealer, and mm-hmm. just she's now in it because they have to support their life. They that's have to what they feed have the to kids. Do. They have to pay the mortgage. They yeah. have to have a life. Yeah, um, and you, and so she goes a long way, mm-hmm. and she's great. So at the end, there really are kind of go full circle and partners. Yeah, although by the time she's up with the FBI guy or whatever for witness relocation, she's like, do I really have to go with him? Yeah, you know, she can, maybe I could just stay here and <laughs> let's get to. Should we get to the last day? I feel like we should talk to the end. Yeah, let's get to the end. Okay. This movie takes such a shift yeah. when we get to the f- end of the film. Oh, it's pathetic. The editing style changes. The pace changes. There are these jump cuts. The music is intense. Yeah. The makeup on, on Ray Liotta looking gray and yeah. sweaty and pallid. Pasty. Pasty. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. I don't. I would turn the movie off. 
Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, I had to walk because it's a great yeah. film, but like part of me is like, you know, I don't need to do this again. This is what I argue on the top 10 show all the time with Matt knows. Matt loves the film so much, but for me, those last 30 minutes undercut the film. And I get it's the point of the film. That's the irony of it all. It's the point of the film. But for me, it undercut. It, may, it, makes, it leaves me with a terrible feeling about it. Well, I don't think I'm thinking. Because I want to enjoy those guys so much. I don't think it undercuts the film as a film. Right. No, not as a film. I just don't want to watch it. Yeah, exactly. Which is, of course, what's the point of the film? <laughs> exactly. It's like to watch. This is where we end up. We end up with a coked up, paranoid, bad person. One of the things that Thomas Schumacher says about it, and and you can see it in the way that it's editing, is there are all these things he has to do. He has to deliver these guns. He has to make sauce. He has to pick up his brother. He has to go over here. He's got to get the drugs. He's got to get away from the uh, helicopter. Yeah, the helicopter, right. Is that the way they edited it, all of these things are equal Mm -hmm. in importance. He no longer can differentiate between the importance of yeah. getting away from the police and making tomato sauce. Because he's on he's high on Coke. Yeah, yeah. high in Coke and paranoid and mm-hmm. really at the end. Yeah. And it is it's really a remarkable and tense and unhappy sequence. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it shows you obviously this is once again what we've been saying the point of the film. It shows you what this lifestyle can lead to. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't lead to death, it leads to you being just this pathetic sad person and you go back to rags like you were saying, right. uh, hustling because you've got now all these mouths to feed. You've got all this situation and you have this terrible babysitter who's an idiot and then you have you're trying to make the spaghetti sauce for whatever reason that's right. so important and then you're trying to do all these things and it just like and you have the paraplegic brother or whatever or, yeah. or son or whatever it is and then you get all this and this is and at the end it just comes all come together and crash comes crashing down like yeah. it, to me it's like a, a, a drum solo by Buddy Rich or something like that it just goes Okrupa just goes all the way to, and at the end yeah you know it just ends and you're just like man there it is it's all yeah. on the ground now and, and and then we're left with this choice he has to make yeah. now we're finally faced with a choice set up at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. you can be disloyal or you can die right and and it seems pretty clear they're gonna kill him yeah you know oh absolutely and may and this is maybe the most disturbing scene to me in the film is jimmy yes. saying to lorraine brocco yeah Go right down there. You get some dresses. <laughs> right in there, dresses. Karen. Right in there. Right in there. <laughs> no, right in there. So is he going to kill her? Yes, absolutely. I think so too. Because Jimmy's reputation is killing any and all witnesses yeah. to save himself. That's just his reputation. I love the big old glasses on De Niro, which oh, conveys great. the old age that he's yeah. at. And that it is creepy the way he's trying to get her to go into that. Horrible. And he doesn't push her. Like, he doesn't physically make sure it happens, which is an interesting moment. And he's not killing her himself. Right. He's setting up the other situation. Because he doesn't want to go to jail himself for killing her, right? So it's it's well, a dirty, dirty scene, man. Well, and this is why, this is where, like, I kind of go back to, yeah. was there any loyalty? Was there any honesty? That's a good point. Was there any, you know, was there anything here mm-hmm. other than mutual self-interest? Right. And we were having fun while it was happening? You know, well, I think these guys aren't capable, but not necessarily capable of it because at any moment their lifestyle can be taken away or they can die. So everything is lived on the edge of a pin uh, or the needle or whatever you want to say. It's 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 at any point, any push one way or the other, you're off the pin. So they're and not really capable of like moral choices. I, I think he's I think Henry is capable of moral choices. I don't think Jimmy, Jimmy, him. I know you were. I, I think Jimmy and Tommy are not. I think yeah, Jimmy he, and Tommy are not. No, Henry's on the flat part of the needle. Jimmy and uh, Tommy are on the on the pin part of the needle. Although Jimmy, without question, cares about Tommy, because when Tommy gets killed, yes, he does. The the and beautiful. So so to, to explain what this is, uh, Tommy's going to be a made man. Yeah, and there's so this they big process where he's going to go in and get quote unquote made, which right. means he becomes you know a safe person within the mafia. Whatever yes, and he goes to this room, and the moment. Where he walks into an empty room and goes, "Oh no!" and then gets shot in the head. Yeah, is really. I remember when I saw it in the theater, and it was shocking. Yeah, totally shocking. And then Jimmy gets the phone call 
that thinking that Tommy's going to be made, and in fact, he finds out he's been killed. Yeah. And De Niro's man, that guy can act. Yeah. And it's no, I mean, I don't want to shock anybody, but he's really talented. <laughs> I, I deeply, profoundly moved. Yeah. Um, in that boom, in that phone booth. Yeah. One of the hardest things you can do is cry on camera. That's the hardest thing you could ever do. And De Niro does such a great job in that moment of crying, of like just exasperation crying that there's nothing to do about it. Because when we're introduced to De Niro and Tommy, they're already friends. They're yeah. already connected. Right. Henry is the one they're bringing in mm. to their crew. They're already a twosome that knows each other really well. It's like he's his son. Like Tom, From what we understand, we don't know that Jimmy has a right. wife and kids. Like We never see his kids, right? We never see Tommy's wife and kids. We just see, or if we do, it's it's not really highlighted by anything. We only see the relationship between Karen and, and uh, Henry. So Tommy, in essence, and Henry to a lesser degree, is one of Jimmy's sons. And at that point, at that time, I think there's a frustration in the death of him because of the relationship, but also because that was going to be their entry into oh, yeah. no, that legitimate was being yeah. gangsters, like absolutely. higher a bra- pay bracket or higher income bracket, absolutely as a gangster. And I, I want to talk about just this moment of crying, just because you yeah. said something that made me think of it, is... Uh, as a director, you're trying to get an actor to get to a moment like that. Now, the first thing you need to do is hire Robert De Niro. Yeah, well, sure, and that you helps. you probably don't have to do much after. <laughs> but but the question is sort of like, well, what direction do I give? And mm-hmm. a lot of times, particularly with young directors, I see them go, can you cry? Can you like be really sad yeah. here? This is a terrible direction. And one of the reasons it's a terrible direction is that we need to do what we're doing when we're acting. Mm-hmm. And something we never do is try to cry right no human tries to cry or or very rarely in weird circumstances mostly what you're doing is in fact the opposite you are trying not to cry right if you watch de niro in this scene he is desperately fighting back tears yeah and that is what makes the performance work Mm -hmm. it's his struggle not to cry yeah his struggle to be a man to hold it all together and he's failing at holding it all together That's what's happening there. Right. And him slamming the phone into the yeah. phone and then just and covering his face. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's what's making that work. Right. Whereas opposed to Will Ferrell and Anchorman is fully laying it all out in the phone right. booth. Yeah. It's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> Not No disrespect, Mr. Ferrell. No disrespect. Please don't come out. Please don't kill us. <laughs> Please don't kill us. <laughs> Gangster Ferrell. Uh, yeah. So it's, 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 it's the film is just full of such layered and rich performances that it's irresistible. Even the last half hour that's so painful to watch and, yeah. and completely. Uh, shows you the disgusting nature of this life it's still irresistible as a movie absolutely yeah well and that's and it's funny uh because i think in a way you kind of have to talk about wolf of wall street in relationship Mm, to goodfellas sure now i don't think wolf of wall street is as good as goodfellas no i don't think it's the same league but it's a good movie i i I like wolf Mm, of wall street too too. and i think it is very much trying to do the same thing which is seduce you into this lifestyle let you have lots of fun until you discover how despicable it is yeah. and then you turn on it and it leaves you with a very unpleasant taste in your mouth. Yes. Um, and part of why it's unpleasant and definitely why Goodfellas is unpleasant is like Karen, when this movie gets handed to you, you're a little bit turned on. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that's what brings you into the film, you know, and then that's why the end is so bad because yeah. now you're hopped up on Coke yeah. and desperate and paranoid and you go, Oh, this is what's happened. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you got to talk, think a little bit about Scorsese's Catholicism yeah. in relationship. It's the idea of sin and what the consequences of sin are mm-hmm. goes throughout a lot of his films. Yeah, Mean Streets, he really, it, Car- uh, Harvey Keitel is definitely doing that, working that out as a, 
avatar for Scorsese. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we don't sin because it feels bad. Right, we sin course. because it feels good. Right, of course. And then this is the consequences. Mm-hmm. This is where sin takes you. Right. Um, it's, a, I think, a deeply moral movie about some deeply immoral or even amoral characters. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, that are just out for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, John, final thoughts on Goodfellas. Uh, If you have not seen Goodfellas in a while, do yourself a favor. Watch it. Don't watch the cut version. Watch the real version. And and if you watch a Blu-ray and DVD or digital, whatever you want to do, but watch the real version. Because I think the thing that's great about the film is that it gives you an authentic taste of what this life is like. Cuss words and all, dirty violence and all, murder and all. And what can possibly flourish in there and what can possibly be choked to death in there in that lifestyle. And it's... It takes you on an incredible journey that you can't resist going on. And by the end of the movie, you're left, I think, almost like a rag that's had too much water. You're just kind of, and you have to rinse that rag out. And you're just left like laying on the floor, in essence, because it does so much to your emotions. And all the great films really do that. And this one definitely qualifies. I totally agree. And I think, you know, sometimes when you're going to see a movie, you're going to, you know, have that experience to see that film. And sometimes what you're going to do is to be taken on a journey by a great artist. And this is, you're in Scorsese's world in a way that very few filmmakers, I think, can put you in their world. His way of seeing things, his music, his pacing, his style, his sense of humor. And even, I think, the demons he faces within himself, Mm -hmm. you know, is that I don't think you could make a movie like that if you hadn't had these feelings. If Even if you think of young Scorsese who was ill as a kid and looking out at the world through a window and looking out at the world through movies and fantasizing about power, about control, about sex, about money, about all these things and feeling all of that within himself and then taking this to its logical conclusion within this film and the logical conclusion is death and violence and despair and and, that's where it leads you and ketchup with water and spaghetti Uh, sauce yeah (laughs) i really and and you do feel for this guy yeah you do and, but but I'm going to go back to what I said before. When I see interviews with the real Henry Hill, yeah. I have no sympathy for that I guy I agree with all. you completely. I have some for Ray Liotta, yeah. none for Henry. I think I've seen him on like Donahue yeah, and, yeah. and Oprah when this film came out. And he, this guy is not in any way redeemable and nowhere near as attractive and interesting as, as Ray Liotta yeah. makes him in the film. All right, so on that note, we'd love to hear what you think of Goodfellas. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. I feel like we only scratched the surface. There's a lot more here. Uh, if you want to reach me, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? Well, yeah, you can always find me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the Super Animation Game Time at 1 p.m. on Wednesdays. It's at uh, Geek and Sundry's Twitch channel. And occasionally on Collider Movie Talk on Fridays. Uh, and uh, this show, of course, obviously. And Walking Dead? And the Walking Dead, yeah, re- Walking uh, Dead review recap. show, which we do uh, every Sunday night, an hour after the East Coast feed is over. So around 8 o'clock, the, the show comes out every Sunday night. And you can visit us on Facebook at uh, The Cinephiles, that's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And please review us on iTunes. Uh, the reviews really help. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't, it could be. I'm not going to say the mafia is going to come after you. <laughs> but we have some connections. I think we've developed them in the course of this podcast and we might make some phone calls. And if we don't get enough reviews, we might be Tommy getting shot in the back yeah, of the head. Yeah, that's true. It's the only thing. If you want to save our lives, that's right. please review us on iTunes. Uh, five stars, please don't kill them. I think it's a good thing. It's a good one. Um, all right. That's it for this time. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles.